Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name. And we're still here. Excited to welcome uh, Roland Lazenby to the show, author of dozens of sports-related books, many are basketball-related, a Jerry West biography, uh, Showtime Lakers biography. And in 2014, he released the definitive deep dive on one Michael Jeffrey Jordan entitled Michael Jordan, The Life. Uh, here he is, the acolyte of his airness himself, Roland Lazenby. Roland, how are you? I'm doing great. You getting along all right? I'm good. Uh, so what are you up to in these these wild pandemic times? I think they're probably pretty pretty good for a writer. It kind of forces your hand to get down to business and, and get in your bunker and start writing, I imagine. That and a deadline always works. Yeah. I, um, I'm uh, writing a biography of Magic Johnson. And I've got, I don't know, close to 300 hours worth of interviews and mountains of research. And um, so I'm moving along on that, but... Um, then along comes MJ and takes the agenda right away from me. You know, um, he told me, uh, I sat down with him in 2008 during the pre-draft camp. We were sitting up in the rafters down in Orlando where all the college seniors and, and draft hopefuls were, were running around down below trying to impress everybody. And I was talking with him a lot about Kobe and then I talked with him about his own life, and he told me timing is everything. And, of course, The Last Dance is the perfect example that Michael Jordan always has the best timing. He came along at the perfect time in history, uh, changed the world. Now, here we are all these years later. We're in coronavirus. There's nothing going on. And here comes Jordan. He's produced his own last dance to show everybody how great he was. And the timing is perfect again. It's breaking records with viewership. A lot of people think he, you know, he has this Machiavellian sort of persona and that he waited until this particular moment to, you know, to have it produced. And that this has been sitting in a vault for 20 years. It's well documented. And then we have, you know, LeBron, people challenge his legacy. And so he waited until a moment to kind of drop who he was on this new generation of basketball watchers. And then this happens, which he couldn't have anticipated. So it's even more, we're stuck in our homes and new kids are discovering you know, this generational talent, I think. Uh, so it even goes more to the MJ legend, which is right on brand with him. How do you decide you know, which, which sports figure you're going to write a book on? Is it just based well, on your just, personal interest or what? I have to say one thing first. Sure. You don't really have to be Machiavelli to want to do these things. These alpha male basketball greats. They're always trying to find one way or another to score on each other, even long after they can't play anymore. Mm. Uh, so how do I choose? Um, well, you know, basketball today is a game of analytics. And actually, that's a function of everything in the world. And so publishing is a game of analytics, which I'm an instinct guy. I'm operated for years on my instincts. Uh, you know, I spent a long time trying to sell the Magic Johnson project, just as it took me years to sell the Jerry West project. And so uh, the analytics guys sometimes, uh, you know, they're doing all who's uh, prominent in the internet searches and, you know, what, what, uh, how things are going to chop out. And um, I, I just like to operate 
from the instinct for greatness and for story. And um, each of these stories of these people I've written about, and it's not just their stories, it's their family stories. I do a deep dive on the, the whole thing because con- we live in an age without context. I was just talking about that on Facebook. We live in, in memes. I shared a bunch of memes just uh, uh, you know, spout off. And then I, I, I looked at that as um, just how little context we have. I'm fortunate enough to get paid to write these long books, which have a lot of context. Uh, some people, they're so long, some people don't want to read them because of all that. And I'm eternally grateful to everyone who does. Fortunately, the Jordan book, a lot of people wanted to read it and are still, you know, thousands are reading it every year. So it's a... Um, He's an interesting story. So why, you know, why basketball in particular? Is it the popularity of the sport and just kind of the market-driven aspect of these are great figures to write about? Or, you know, I know you've written on different topics, but it seems like you focused on basketball. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I even played a year of college football, Division One, as a walk-on. And I played three years of rugby, but I don't, I don't weigh about 160 pounds back then. But, but so I sort of really like uh, football. My old man was a basketball nut. I played pickup basketball all my life, but he got. I was working as a news reporter, a night police reporter in 1980 when he was diagnosed with brain cancer. It was a really intense passing. Took months. I'd get off at 1 a.m. and go over and sit up with him. And he had just always loved basketball to the max. And I really started playing pickup then uh, in that time that he passed in the months after. It just made me feel closer to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next thing you knew, I was writing basketball books. And it was sort of like I was traveling his path. But it wasn't until I did the Michael Jordan book that I really understood the dynamic because so much of Michael's life is really yelling across time at his old man. Now, he loved his old man dearly, but, uh, you know, Michael felt that sting of fatherly disapproval, and that's a sting that never stops. And so much of Michael's life was proving every night to his old man. You know, and it went on long after his old man, who used to favor Michael's older brother, Larry. Long after his father gave up that and, you know, just was head over heels, proud of his son but there was still that unleashed nuclear reactor in Mike Michael where and, and, and that's sort of true it's almost some kind of strange homing device in all of us the things that sort of set us on our paths that's a long answer I apologize no no happy to hear you talk about it and so that makes sense. It sounds like, you know, your experience with your dad, you kind of have something in common with Michael, maybe writing that you, you, you realize that basketball can kind of be the thing that ties familial generations together. Um, That's the reason I like these family stories. Uh, I, you know, there's a great study of the mothers. Um, you're looking at all the perfectionism and drive it takes to be, uh, I mean, this is not easy stuff. These people that, that, that do these things and play at this very, very high level, they're just different uh, creatures. And, it, the, you know, the family stories are one of the ways that we all begin to understand them a little better and have a little better sense of who they are. So was Jordan the white whale in your, in your sports writing career? Was he the one you had sort of circled on the calendar and said, 
once I get this, that's when I've made it? Or, you know, did you anticipate never getting there? No, I didn't even think about it. I really was at a low spot. I had worked, I'd started really writing my first, I, I, I was a news writer, you know, covering crime and courts and all the heartbreak the world can, can get together for you. And um, I went to grad school while I was going full time. I went to write after the writing program at Holland University. And the first uh, day of grad class, the instructor said, you know, if you're going to be a writer, you really ought to write a book, get it started right away. I was 29 at the time. And I made a, I've always been a big divergent thinking guy. And that's how I do a lot of my ideas. And so I always make a list of 10 to 15 items. Don't worry if they're good or bad ideas. I just get them on the list. And I do this for every stage of my process. It is critical. It changed my life learning to think like this. And you're basically getting the heart of the college course I taught for 21 years. And Divergent Thinking basically was a list of 15 good book ideas. And item number seven on that list changed my life. And so a lot of people want to rush and do three or four quick ideas. You really need to trot out the whole thing. So uh, item number seven was a book about Ralph Sampson, who was starring at the University of Virginia, totally changing the culture of the state, uh, really changing everything uh, uh, about Virginia. And I, I wanted to write the cultural story of that, the family story. And that really got me off and running as a writer. Um, John Thompson read it, and Georgetown hired me to do their 1984 National Championship book. And and so, um, you know, I was moving through a series of contracts and learning as I went, all of them driven by that sort of thinking, divergent thinking, where you make lists of possible great answers and then converge on the one that seems best. Cool. Uh, we'll have the listeners of this podcast apply for a small credit uh, from, from your curriculum. <laughs> Maybe they'll get it. Yeah. Uh, so, so the whole course now they can graduate. <laughs> so the, you, you mentioned your process earlier. It sounds like you you get you know hundreds of hours of interviews, and then you um, you know just do a ton of research. So explain to me how that all comes together. You know, or, uh, you talk to Michael. It sounds like uh, during writing this particular book. Uh, and then how, are you doing phone interviews or just whatever you can get? Right. I do lots of phone interviews for years. You know, I was sort of this scavenger running around the NBA, you know, and coming out of the eighties, man, uh, you know, you could get an NBA credential if you were writing about them mm. for the most part. And, uh, you had access to all the locker rooms, practices, you, you know, you could arrange interviews, the NBA was open range back then. It was friendly. You got to know people. And uh, that began to change. Um, the, the craziness came really in the 90s when Jordan began to blow it up. Now, it was, it was pretty crazy in the 80s, but really crazy in the 90s. The media crews and... You know, uh, David Stern had begun dumping games all across the world in the 80s. Uh, for example, in Romania, they couldn't afford to put on local soccer, but NBA games were cheap enough to air. And soon there was this burgeoning um, sale of 
all kinds of t-shirts and shoes and caps and all the and so the NBA went from a few hundred million to well over a billion in those kinds of sales and they were just very smartly driving the interest for American basketball but it wouldn't have mattered much if you hadn't had Jordan just be this fascinating figure and um so, um, you know, as the 90s went on, it was great fun. I had been through a, a decade of writing books. Um, there was a huge recession in 91, 92, 93, a triple dip recession. And that's basically what drove me into the college teaching ranks. You know, I needed additional support while I was doing my writing. And the low moment was the 1992 All-Star Game. And I drove from my home in Virginia. You know, I covered some All-Star Games and NBA Finals. And I had my media credential, but, you know, we were really low on cash. And I drove to the All-Star Game and parked in the parking lot of the media hotel. My press credential got me plenty of free uh, chow and booze and a ride on the media bus to the arena. And I, I could do all the interviews I wanted. And it was there that the Chicago Tribune book division hired me to do a couple of different bulls projects. And if I hadn't been willing to go down there and sleep in my car, I, I wouldn't have gotten and to meet with the, uh, the book division in Orlando, I would never have gotten those projects. So it, uh, it's just a long process of um, idea-driven work that um, the kind of stuff I love to do. I was sort of keeping my old man alive with me as I did it. You know, I, I had to do the NBA Finals history, uh, official history. It's an idea I came up with, and they jumped at it. It hadn't been done in years. And I got to go around interviewing all the old-timers, uh, I spent hours with Jerry West, who my father's, you know, he idolized Jerry West. My father was, and his brothers were all these old two-handed set shooters out of West Virginia, mm-hmm. Southern West Virginia, hillbillies, uh, launching up set shots. So fun. And then they had semi-industrial league. But everywhere I went, it was like my old man was with me, you know. I, I'd do an interview, and I'd say, man, he'd love to be sitting here with me on this. And so it's... It's not easy to uh, understand how you end up doing a whole life of this, but uh, it sure was fun. I bet. Um, So what's the most surprising thing you learned about MJ when you wrote this book, the thing that you didn't know at all? Well, I I already knew a lot, but really the thing that when you write, especially when you're doing one of these big projects like this, the key to me has always been the emotional relationship I form with the research. And that's often true of reporters and writers, you know, or media figures. You're doing an interview with somebody and they're telling you stuff that you didn't know, uh, that no one knows but you. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're suddenly into sort of what I used to explain in teaching interviewing you're into that magical sort of golden state where you're really learning. It, it really is just a very active style of learning. When I was doing all this stuff with the Bulls, 
I, I, I'd have to do interviews with Krauss and then I'd do interviews with Phil Jackson where he would just, nobody knew that he and Krauss were enemies. This was like uh, 93, 94. And And Phil would say all these harsh things about Krauss on the record. And that's sort of really in those interviews how a lot of things blew up. Krauss got furious and they they started to have it out and it it just built up over the years. But um, being able to do all those interviews, you know, whether it's a, I, I mean, every kind of thing. But I really had a lot of fun with Jordan to finally answer your question as I was really finding out where he came from, who his people were. And, you know, we really have no idea of race in this country. Um, You really have to dig back into the records and to look. You know, it was really, uh, I mean, if you're just honest about it, it was a terrorist campaign run against African-Americans and, they, it was a caste system to keep them as cheap labor. And the newspapers played a part in that because whenever they, they had all this violent stuff, they were doing lynching. And, and you, you, you could just get it and read it in the newspapers of yesteryear like you're reading about a car wreck, you know. Mm. But the newspapers would describe it in really violent language. And they were, you know, back then everything, the information was newspapers and they were really communicating the terrorism for, for the people running the caste system. It was all part of things. And so it's fun for me to look at how the ancestors of these great basketball players came through this system that would buckle anybody. And then to see the ways they uh, they adapted and prospered. And, you know, a lot of that stuff is sort of on the trash heap of history. You don't, you don't think about the mule and sharecropping or moonshining and how important that was as a cash crop to all those. Uh, and this is black or white sharecroppers and tenant farmers. And so the, all the stories of this, all the violence, all the fear... You get into a place like Mississippi, where Magic's father is from, or North Carolina, where Magic's mother is from. You know, and Michael, uh, North Carolina had more Klan members than all the other southern states combined. And so uh, I enjoy the basketball. I love it. But I like to bring uh, a sense of the whole picture to people. Uh, Just straight up, it's not. It's just... Uh, a series of facts. It comes from uh, accounts of the time. It comes from census records. It comes from calling up distant family members who lived in the community and know all about this great grandparent. Or and, and it's amazing the people you find that connect to family. It's amazing the the mothers and. You know, there are all kinds of different women, but they have a huge impact on the competitive nature of their sons. And Jerry West, you know, his people were the colonial governors of Virginia, Lord De La War, Delaware, Delaware River, Delaware Indians, state of Delaware, all is from De La War, Sir Thomas West. And so Jerry West people come to this country, you know, as part of the... the uh, nobility 
And at some point along the line, a couple of generations, one of the sons gets kicked out of the family and has to go over to West Virginia, which is this wild country. And that's how Jerry's line of the, the famous De La War nobility ends up being dirt scratching hillbillies. And, uh, and so the, a lot of these background stories are sagas. And, you, you know, it's, it's fun to tell the whole thing. Uh, and I'll add one final key to it. These figures like MJ, especially MJ, but Kobe and LeBron, they are they they become global cultural figures. And that that is a crazy phenomenon of the last 35 years or so, where because the globe didn't care about American professional basketball. Hell, America hardly cared. Right. Uh, and so now it's blown up into the biggest thing going. And here in the time of Corona 19, it, it is what it is. It is everything just about in the sporting world. It is. I think you, you cover multiple generations of the Jordan family and you get in depth in that. You'd cover his career chronologically, which was, you know, very compelling and, and wild to experience how much he had done in his life. But there were a lot of sensitive family issues in the book. You know, you cover abuse, you know, in the family and things of that nature. So what was yeah, there? Mark, Michael's probably, um, that's what, why he's pissed off at me. And he wasn't. And it was hard to know what to do. The sister had made allegations. And I did not hype it in the book. You had to read into it before you ever, I mean, it's not, it's, and it's only like a three or four pages. And all I say is you, you, you can't tell. I mean, it's, it really was never adjudicated. Uh, and so just the mere allegation itself is devastating for any family. Sure. So when you're analyzing the facts, uh, doing a biography, I still wasn't sure I was going to mention it. Uh, his sister wrote a book about it. It was uh, independently published. I still wasn't sure. You couldn't find the book. I still wasn't sure I was going to write about it, but I was doing research at the UNC library and there was her book on special collections. If you're doing a biography and you're trying to explain the family, I still can't sit here and tell you I'm 100% comfortable with reporting that, but it was, I, you know, to dismiss the sister as insane well, you know, psychoanalysts will tell you one of the great ways to go insane is to be abused by your father. I have no idea. I'm not trying to make the case for or against the sexual abuse that is alleged of James Jordan against his oldest daughter. I don't know. I just reported it as a fact that hit like a quake in the family. Sure. Uh, and I mean, it, and he's notorious, MJ, is for controlling his own narrative in the media. So right. I, I was curious when that, I came across elements like that. And, and that just jumped out in particular, obviously, is did he have to sign off on this book before it was published? Or was this just, no. I, you know, I'm reporting the facts and obviously not. He didn't sign off. So, right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I I went, shook his hand, told him I was doing it. And... Um, he was fine. He, you know, he, he answered a couple of quick questions for me that night. And then I made plans to try to interview him extensively. And 
he didn't want to do it. Jerry West cooperated a good bit. Um, that was different. Um, his family cooperated a lot, uh, but they were in a disagreement over their father. Jerry absolutely, his father had been dead 30 years and Jerry hated him with a passion. And the other siblings did not hate him. And I had a more nuanced view. And Jerry had been great and it helped me. And I talked to Jerry from other projects, but he got really furious that I had a nuanced view of his father. And so, um, uh, you know, Kobe, I, I worked with him years ago on a book. I introduced him to the, the, probably the two most important professional people in his life. The first one was Tex Winter, who was then an assistant coach with the Bulls. Kobe was a young trouble guy. I was rebounding free throws for him in the forum in 1999 during the playoffs when they were getting swept. The Lakers were getting swept by the Spurs. And he told me he had always dreamed of playing for Tex Winter. And Tex was my good friend from my years of covering the Bulls. And so I got Tex to call him because Kobe was lost and lonely, a really confused kid. Um, you know, struggling with being one of the few young people in the NBA and with all this ambition and all the pressure he put on his teammates and the gulf between him and them. And Tex was great. The other thing I did is I got George Mumford, the great mindfulness expert who worked with the Bulls and had been so important in MJ's life. I got him to fly to Houston to meet Kobe courtside one night during the regular season that year. And both of them ended up working for... The Lakers, of course, when Phil Jackson got the head coaching job and Kobe swore by them his whole life. And so it's always a different relationship. Um, Magic has said off and on that he's going to cooperate. His longtime agent, Lon Rosen, is you know, has given me guidance and talked about the book. I really have no idea if they're going to end up, end up cooperating. Um, I just try to tell the story. It's, uh, it's amazing. I apologize. I don't know if you can edit out my cell phone. <laughs> no, no worries at all. Um, no, it is. is. Is there anything that ended up on the cutting room floor of this book that you were, that you pained you to take out of there? Uh, the book was, a thousand Michael Jordan the life was a thousand plus maybe 1100 pages one of the first drafts and um, it was so exhausting my editor said little brown said I'll take it and and cut it and he he said I'll keep it a month and I'll get it back to you three months later he got back to me and said I can't cut this thing (laughs) and so uh, it uh it was a grind. It, it broke down my health. Tw- I got exhausted twice doing it. I, I always have had tremendous energy. And so it, it really broke down my health, but I got it done. You know, really, when you're telling a story, every time you talk about it, you're articulating it. And every time you articulate it, you have new revelations about what you're doing. And that is uh, a big, big thing. And uh, so every time I do a project, I understand more and more about the person I get into after the book is done. 
that part of it can be frustrating. That is where interviews such as this, and I, I do a lot of them. I try to do every interview that's requested of me for the simple reason that I'm constantly asking people to grant me interviews. And the worst thing you can do is be a, a big old hypocrite and not answer interview requests and try to explain yourself and what you're doing to people. We appreciate that, Roland. I, I try to pay it for it as well. Um, I call it the last dance. Like it's like drinking a natural light. And your book is like a, a heavy bodied IPA or porter. Um, so, what are your thoughts on on the documentary so far? And and has it made you kind of look back on your writing process at all? I, and no doubt, it's cast your book back into the limelight to some degree. I have to imagine. Yeah, I, I, this year has been interesting in that regard. The the most profound thing for me, obviously, was the death of Kobe Bryant. And uh, having been through and having written Shoba, a 600 page biography of Kobe that came out in 2016. And then to, and, you know, this is a guy I'd known, uh, what, 20 years? He'd been a pro. He'd been, I, I guess, uh, 22, no more than that. He was 18 when I met him. And he, you know, I'd, I'd known him 23 years. And um, I'd spent a lot of time talking to him. Um, so, uh, and, I, and I had, as soon as I got off the phone, the phone rang and Kobe's dead and here's the BBC needing me right away. And it's not that I'm any big icon that needs to talk or anything. I, I'm just the guy a lot of times they can get a hold of. So I did something like 43 interviews in 26 hours after that first thing and then they continued and it just literally uh, wiped me out but it really got me to thinking you know if, if you don't go through something like that and and be jolted into thinking about your process what you're doing then then you're um, you're in the wrong business and so uh, I've done a lot of thinking of that. The, the other answer to your question to finish up, yes, there are things that I leave out of all the books. And I have to decide what. You know, there, there's a lot of detail in the people's sexual lives. I tend to sort of give a hazy impression of that. I'm not there really to poke around in somebody's truly personal business. Sometimes, as with Magic Johnson, that spills over so profoundly into the public spotlight that you have to address it. I'm fortunate there in that magic has said far more on Oprah than <laughs> yeah. you could ever even want to communicate to people. That and the Wilt Chamberlain uh, uh, public yeah. statements, and we, we, we've heard all of that. Jordan, however, was, was a lot quieter, and I did notice the elements of the book in that regard were more suggestive than there weren't any specifics. Right, and the same with Kobe. And uh, there were reasons for that. The same with Jerry West. And um, a lot of times these things people do are even well known. Uh, also, it, it, I should point out that my books, they're published by major publishers. They go through a rigorous legal review. And sometimes the legal things they require changed are silly. But, uh, you know, I listen to the lawyers. I, I used to cover the courts. I, uh, 
you know, I, I, I just am sort of a fact-based guy. Yeah, I'm an entertainment lawyer myself, so I, uh, yeah. I, I'm usually the guy taking out the stupid things and being the no man, unfortunately. But well, it saves you know. It's not whether you win or lose a suit; it's whether you get su- a suit at all. Unfortunately, because right. you can spend a. And Donald Trump has lived by that. My, uh, the lawyer on the Kobe book had me take out something simple, and he said, "You know, I represented a publisher sued by Donald Trump." We won the suit against Donald, but we spent $25 million winning the suit. And so, if you're in business, that's a loss. Very much so. Well, one last question before I let you go, Roland. What's the last yeah. great thing you read? Oh, gosh. I go back. I go back and watch old movies. I reread great things. I might be a Huckleberry Finn. I don't know that. Um, I, I, I tell you, I've been reading Parting the Waters, America in the Keen Years, the first part of Robert Caro's trilogy about the life and times of Martin Luther King Jr. And I, I read, it's a thousand page book. I, I don't, you know, and I, I'll read a book. I read a book like Robert Caro's first part of his series on LBJ. Uh, and I, I love these big stories, but I can't consume them constantly, but those are the two I'll go back to. Those are the the things that serve as a paradigm for a lot of what I do. Well, Roland, we appreciate your time today, man, and, and good luck with the, the novel going forward. We'll look forward to that hitting shelves and maybe have you back on and talk about uh, magic when that comes around. I'd be happy to, and i got to say, you know, at this stage of the process, I've answered a lot of the same questions and really uh, – it's exhausting, but that wasn't the case with this interview. I mean, there was a, this is fun. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that, Roland. Um, mm-hmm. Have a good day. Stay safe and, and talk soon. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Well, that was Roland Lazenby, the author of Michael Jordan, The Life, uh, kind of the the pivotal biography of Michael Jordan and and one of the you know two or three books you'll see if you at all search books about Jordan. Uh, he gave a lot of good insight into his process and how he ended up writing, how he got where he did, uh, and, and, and a lot of really important stuff there. And it's a really good book. I, I highly recommend you check that out. I will definitely be checking out his other sports books. He's a talented writer and someone that really dives in and tells you the whole story as opposed to the the bits that we see on ESPN or whatever. So um, I feel like when I'm watching the last dance Jordan documentary, when having read this book, I now feel like I've read game of Thrones already and I'm watching the the show and I'm that person that constantly points out stuff that, you know, that isn't in the show, but I know because I read the book. So if you want to be that kind of person to go ahead and take this book in, it's good. Uh, and uh, with that, you know, have a good Thursday, everyone check out the other podcasts in the Barnburner podcast network available to you. And wherever you get your podcasts, uh, we have the theater and college hoops guys are doing a countdown of the top 50 basketball programs, college basketball programs in the country. Um, we have some in the can episodes coming up. And of course our backdoor cut stream where we have Memphis Grizzlies and Memphis Tiger stuff. Uh, so check out everything. Check out the website at www.the-barmurder.com. And thanks for listening, y'all. Talk soon.